Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, where you'll find fresh messages uploaded weekly. Pathway Church is a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. We hope that what you hear today will help you to take one step closer to Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. Great to see you here today. If you haven't been with us, uh, we're in a message series uh, that we're calling Freedom. And uh, over a 12-week span, we're actually studying one of Paul's letters to the New Testament church called Galatians. And uh, if you haven't been with us again over the past three weeks, we've kind of been walking through about 10 verses or so each week. And uh, the theme of this particular letter that Paul writes, uh, he's writing to a group of churches in the Roman province of Galatia, and he's writing to, to clarify and to correct some things that had got off course. Specifically, the theme of this particular letter is the gospel. And, and the question surrounding the gospel is, what can a person do to be right with God? Like, what are we supposed to do? How can we be right with God, who we know we're not right with? How do we do that? How has salvation come? And of course, the gospel is simply this, that you can't do anything to be right with God. Therefore, God himself comes into the earth, and Jesus comes, and he lives the perfect life and dies for our sins on our behalf that through him we could be right with God. This is the gospel, and so we find this theme woven through this entire letter and all of other, Paul's other letters, but specifically this one. And so we find this theme, but then each week as we're kind of walking through, uh, we're also finding some sub-themes. And so if you weren't here last week, we talked about disagreement, which was really fun, uh, about the necessity for disagreement, how important it is. Like, people sometimes think the world would be a better place if everyone agreed with me. And the truth is, it wouldn't be. Uh, because if we all agreed, we'd, we'd all be the same person, and there'd be no diversity, and we couldn't learn anything, and we'd never get anything done, you know? So, so we need disagreement, and the answer isn't for us all to agree. The answer is actually for us to learn to disagree well, that, that you see things that I don't see. You have gifts, talents, and abilities I don't have, and vice versa. And so when we disagree, and we disagree well, we learn from one another, and we correct one another like a, like a pendulum swinging back and forth. We find middle ground, and this is God's intention, that we'd be a body, that we'd all collectively work together, that he would literally reveal himself through one another. So we had this, this whole theme of disagreement. Well, today, uh, I want to introduce uh, another theme that we're going to find in our text as we walk through it. And uh, to do so, I'm going to quote Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 12, uh, verse 1, Jesus makes this statement. He says, beware, okay, beware, that's a big word, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now look at that word beware, that's a strong word. I mean, we only use beware when there's something, you know, seriously dangerous, true? Like beware of dog. Now, you know, when you put up a sign like that, you better have a Doberman, you know, or a pit bull, not one of these little, you know, poodles or toy dogs, right? That doesn't count. You can't use beware with one of those. Beware of lion in cage. Beware of falling rocks or, you know, beware of avalanche, things that will kill you. We typically use this word beware. It's a very, very strong term. Beware of bats. No, we don't usually say that. This week, the... <laughs> I was down in the basement um, just the other day, and I heard my wife calling me from upstairs. She's like, Nathan, you need to come up here right now. And I could tell there was an urgency in her voice, and I didn't know what it was. She didn't tell me because I assumed she didn't want the kids to be frightened. And so I run up the stairs, and I'm like, what's going on? She says, there's a bat in the kids' bathroom. I'm like, 
come on, there's not a bat in our house. So I literally go into the bathroom and I close the door and I'm looking around. I'm like, I don't see a bat. And I check behind the shower curtain. I'm looking around. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this giant bat flying straight at my head. Beware of bat. I I panicked. I I did. Uh, The garbage can might have been turned over. Uh, Eventually, though, uh, the bat was removed from our home. So that was good news. But I don't even know. As, As terrifying as bats can be, I don't know if that counts as a beware but Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, some of you, you know, what's leaven? Well, that's a word that means yeast. Some of you are going, I still don't know what that is because you don't bake. Yeast is something you add to dough, you add to bread. It's a culture that, that, that creates a reaction. And so if you make bread without yeast, you get this like flat pita bread, like really flat. It doesn't rise. But when you put leaven or yeast into the bread, it turns into something miraculous. This white, fluffy, soft bread, it rises, and you bake it, and you get this beautiful thing. And so Jesus is like, beware, leaven. <laughs> like, seems odd. Now, the, his listeners, he's talking specifically to his disciples now, those who would lead the early church, and they would have understood some imagery around this idea of leaven, all right? For, for a Jewish person, each year they would celebrate for a week something called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, and during this week, they would commemorate how God brought them out of bondage in Egypt. And they left in such a hurry when they were finally freed from Egypt. They grabbed their things and left. The bread didn't have time to rise. And so their bread, they ate the bread flat. With, with head didn't rise. And so they would each, each year, a, a practicing Jewish person would still today practice this this uh, holiday of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where literally for a week long they would eat no yeast. And so you go through your cupboards and you take all the yeast out, and maybe as a family you do some spring cleaning and you go through the whole house and you remove any bread, any food products, any canned goods, anything that has yeast in it, it would come out of the house. You'd literally clean house. And so Jesus is saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So immediately they're thinking, okay, clean house, get the leaven out, Leaven maybe represents sin, bondage, all that stuff. So, okay, they're kind of trying to get this picture. Uh, Matthew's account of this same thing tells us that the disciples started turning to each other and going like, where's the bread? We need bread. We should have got some at the last truck stop. Like, like we need, he's saying this because we're supposed to have bread. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. He says, beware of the leaven. This is super dangerous now. Yeast, leaven of the Pharisees. And he tells us what it is. And this is our theme for today which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. I'm like, oh, okay. Jesus is like, the thing that is so dangerous, that is, is, is so detrimental to you and to the church, it's this thing called hypocrisy. Now, uh, in order to understand uh, what hypocrisy is, we're going to have to look at some definitions. But I find it fascinating that the very thing that Jesus says we are to beware of is the very thing that people often claim the church is. Would you agree? In our culture today, people, if you talk about Christianity or faith, they often go, well, you know, I don't want anything to do with Christians. They're hypocrites. Why? Because Christians have been known for judging other people, for trying to slam the Bible down their throats, tell everyone else how to live, and then in a twisty turn of events, some preacher or Christian person gets up on TV and, and they fail and everyone sees it and it's like, well, they don't even practice what they preach. They're hypocrites. And it's unfortunate, but in reality... Um, We all have a little bit of hypocrisy. So today, um, the title of my message is Hunting Hypocrisy. Isn't that good? Everyone's just like, ooh. Hunting Hypocrisy. Now, I want to make it very clear from the outside, outset. 
We're not hunting hypocrisy in the people around us. That would be way too easy. And you know it, right? Like, if you live with anybody for any amount of time, you know where they're hypocritical. You see it so clearly. We're not hunting for their hypocrisy. We're hunting for ours. And and like the Jewish people would do at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we want to search it out. We want to hunt it and remove it. We want to clean house. Here, not around us. I'm not trying to clean up the person beside us. We're, We're cleaning the hypocrisy out of here if we're doing this right. And so if we're hunting hypocrisy, we need to know what we're looking for. So I got this little image. Some of you have played Where's Waldo before. You know, here's a picture. And if I tell you, where's Waldo? You've got to find Waldo in there, but I don't tell you what he looks like. Good luck. Some of you are already hard at work looking for Waldo. I don't even know if you can see that at the back, but uh, Waldo is somewhere in there. All right, three, two, one. Okay. Waldo is up in the top right beside the white flag, just in case, because I know some of you won't listen to anything I say until you find him. So there he is. Okay, you can take that down. So <laughs> take it down, take it down. All right. <laughs> um, so in order for us to, to seek out hypocrisy in us and to remove it, or to seek to remove it, we kind of need to have an, a definition that we share. And so uh, Merriam-Webster defines the word hypocrisy in this way, and I think this is a good starting point, that hypocrisy is a behavior that contradicts what one claims to believe or feel. It's it's when you say you believe one thing and you do the very opposite. That's hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is an ugly thing, and hypocrisy, as we're going to find out, is a dangerous thing. And hypocrisy exists in us, and that's the the hardest part of all this. The, The Greek word that we get our word hypocrisy from literally means actor, pretender, the image of a mask, that you're pretending to be something you're not. That is the definition of hypocrisy. And, you know, all of us have been driving down the road and we get mad because someone's texting and driving. It's like, how dare they text and drive? And they swerve into our lane and we spill your hamburger all over your lap. How did he know? It's hypocrisy. And we all do it. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 2. Last week we saw Paul and Barnabas. They went to Jerusalem and they, they disagree and they settle this disagreement about whether people who are not Jewish have to become Jewish to follow the Jewish Messiah. And by the way, the answer was no. You don't have to get circumcised, follow all the customs, laws, and rituals. And so then he's continuing to, to tell the, the Galatians about how um, he has an interaction with Peter. And many of you, even if you haven't been to church, you know, you know St. Peter, he's at the pearly gates. He was Jesus's, one of Jesus' closest disciples, one of the leaders in the early church, etc., So here's what he says, chapter 2, verse 11. Let's get into it. But when Cephas, it's an Aramaic word, means rock, because Jesus called Peter rock, and so that was what they called him. When Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Little backstory. Antioch is not a Jewish city. And uh, so the church in Antioch, really, there were Jews and non-Jews in the church, but it was kind of the hub for a lot of the Gentile churches in the region. And Peter, who walked on water, Peter, who saw the resurrected Jesus, is coming to visit the church at Antioch. Kind of a big deal. It's like Billy Graham coming to Pathway Church to pay a visit. Like, people who don't even attend our church all show up just because he's coming. Like, Peter shows up, like the Peter shows up in Antioch, and, and Paul says, while he was there, I confronted him. I, I opposed him to his face. By the way, if you're going to oppose or disagree with somebody, you should do it to their face. Just throw that out there. That's free, okay? Because he stood condemned. Now, Peter didn't break a law. 
Why does he say that Peter was condemned? Well, we shouldn't go around condemning other people. What we're going to discover is that Peter was condemned because he was living contrary to what he himself believed and taught. That is hypocrisy. Paul sees it, and because hypocrisy is so dangerous, beware, he's going to address it in a public way. Now, in the Catholic tradition, um, just as far as interpretation goes, and if you're from a Catholic background, you may have heard that, oh, this isn't, this isn't Peter, because Peter was the first pope, and Peter's infallible because he's the pope, but we don't believe that. We believe that there's no one is infallible, save Jesus. Like, Jesus is the only person who was perfect. All the rest of us fail and falter. And, and if that's true, then that means that, that no person in this room, including myself, is beyond reproach. No person in this room, including myself, is beyond correction. True? I don't care if you're a pastor or a bishop or a prime minister or a president or anyone of authority or power. If a structure is set up where the person at the top cannot make a mistake and cannot be corrected, you're in deep trouble. Something bad is going to happen, okay? And, and so we are not, no one is infallible that also should warn us, because like, if Peter was susceptible to slip into hypocrisy, guess what that means for us? It probably means that we could slip into hypocrisy, okay? And, and so we don't want to put people on pedestals, and we want to allow people to correct us in our battle to hunt hypocrisy. So, we move on to verse 12. He continues the explanation, for before certain men came from James, now James was one of the leaders in Jerusalem in the early church, so before these Jews came from Jerusalem, Peter was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So Peter arrives on the scene. Everyone's like, Peter. And he sits down and he's eating with, with Gentiles. Now, Jews and Gentiles didn't, didn't coexist like that. They weren't buddies, all right? And the Jews kind of lived separately. And so Peter enters in as if there's no dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and he's living among and teaching the Gentiles, and, he's, and the, this wall that existed between Jews and Gentiles down, and he's there. And then the moment these Jewish people arrive from Jerusalem, he withdraws and stops associating with the Gentiles. And it's like this little click. All the Jews start all rallying together, and all the Gentiles, there's like this division happening in the church. And the hypocrisy of this is this. In Acts chapter 10... We find the story, and you can read it this week, of how Peter, now this is, Jesus tells his disciples as he's flying up into heaven, go into the world and preach to all nations, making disciples, right? So guess what the disciples do after he leaves? They stay in Jerusalem. They don't go anywhere. And, and so Peter's on this roof praying and God gives him a vision, and he sees this like sheet or blanket coming down from heaven, and it's full of snakes and pigs and animals that Jews were not allowed to eat. They were unclean animals. And God says to Peter, kill and eat. Are you kidding me? We're forbidden to eat that. It's unclean. And, and the story goes that God speaks to him and says, do not call unclean what I have made clean. And so Peter snaps out of his vision. He's like, what was that all about? Knock, knock, knock on the door. Immediately following there's a messenger from a Roman centurion. You want to talk about the enemy for a Jew, Roman centurion. Knock, knock, knock. My master Cornelius is inviting you, Peter, to come and tell him and his family about Jesus. Well, Peter's like, not a chance. Normally, 
a Jew would never enter a Gentile's house and never share this beautiful thing of the gospel with people that are unworthy and unclean. And yet because of his vision, God had revealed to Peter, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And so what does Peter do? He goes with a group of Jews. They enter into the house very hesitantly. Don't touch anything. Unclean. They come in the house. He presents the message of Jesus and the gospel to Cornelius and his family. Cornelius and his family believe. And the Jews would have been very skeptical. Well, this isn't really for them. They don't belong. The Holy Spirit descends on these new converts. And God goes like, just like I gave the Holy Spirit to you, I give it to them. They're part of the same family, one in Christ. And all the Jews are like, what just happened? So they baptize. And baptism is the sign of conversion into the Christian faith. Into the water, out of the water. And so they baptize Cornelius and his family. And they leave that situation going, their heads are blown. Like, we didn't know. Like, the whole world is fair game with the gospel. And they hadn't realized it. And they were marveling and shocked. And so now when Peter withdraws from the Gentiles to, to be this exclusive club with the Jews, Paul says, not a chance. You know better. You've taught better. And what you're doing is hypocritical. And he calls it out in the midst of everyone. So, hypocrisy is two-faced. Probably don't need to say much about that. If you're a different person at church than you are at work or at school, that's hypocrisy. Like if you behave differently. The problem with being two-faced is that um, at some point you start to lose track of who you are. Like which version are you? Are you the version you are at church or the version you are at work? Are you the version at the pub or the version at small group? Like which is it? And you should be the same. You should be the same person responding in the same ways. That Anything other than that is his hypocrisy, and so it's two-faced. And then verse 13, he continues, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So because of Peter's influence, he's literally withdrawing, and because he withdraws, all the other Jews begin to withdraw from the Gentiles. The the very separation Jesus died to remove is being reestablished through Peter's hypocritical act, and it's a small thing, but it has big ramifications and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that Barnabas, Paul's ministry partner, was led astray by their hypocrisy. I wrote this down. Hypocrisy is contagious. That's why Jesus uses the image of leaven or yeast. Because you just put a, how much yeast do you need? Not much. You put a little bit and it spreads and, and just takes over the thing and it radically transforms it. And you can't even see it happening. You look and it's here and then you come back a half an hour later and it's here and then you come back and it's here. Like it it kind of works beneath the surface. It is super, super uh, contagious. And so I'd say this. How you live becomes super important. Would you agree? Like, if you're a parent, your kids, sure, your kids are hearing what you say, but they're watching what you do, and they have a very high sensitivity to hypocrisy. So it doesn't matter if you tell them all the right things to do, and you put them in Sunday school and they tell them the right things to do and how to love Jesus, and then they see you not doing it. That's hypocrisy. And, and they'll respond to that. And it is contagious and it permeates everything. This is why we want to hunt it down and clean house, okay? Because what we, if there's hypocrisy in us, then it gives everyone else around us the okay. Like, oh, well, he can do it. It's fine for him. I guess I'm fine for me. And it just spreads and begins to contaminate everything. So enough said. Verse 14. When I saw their conduct was, in, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, before them all, calls him out publicly, 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentile to live like Jews? Uh, Paul is literally saying, if you know this to be true and you're living contrary to it, how could you ever expect them to change and become Jewish? Like this, it, it didn't make sense. It was hypocritical. I wanted to just add a couple comments before we, before we move on. The first is this. We don't, as a church and as Christians, we don't judge outsiders, okay? And I'm not making this up. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 5, 12. You can go read it, all right? Paul says, we don't judge outsiders. The job of the church, the job of a Christian is not to go out into the world and tell everybody how to live. It's not. We, we don't go out into society, to our workplace, to our school, and be like, the Bible says, do this or else. That, that's not our job. We are not the moral police of our culture. In fact, if you look at this historically, any time someone tried to take Christian morality, the teachings of Christ, or the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, and tried to enforce it, nationally, like a law from top down, in that situation, Christianity has died. Because Christianity was never about the government enforcing God's laws. It was about God transforming the heart and us living God's laws. And so God doesn't want to transform our country from the leader and the parliamentary system. He wants to transform it through individuals who surrender their lives willingly to him and live in a certain way, without hypocrisy. That's what his plan was. So so we don't have to comment on the culture. We don't have to tell everybody why they're wrong. The Bible says. And they're thinking, I don't care what that old dusty book says. Because they're not under the authority of that book. But if we claim to be under the authority of that book, we ought to live in the way that it says. Otherwise, we're the ones who are the hypocrites. So, we don't judge others. Here's what we do do. We do call people to live according to their own profession. Now, I said it this way on purpose. I could have said we do judge those inside insiders. I could have said that. The problem is, okay, again, here's where we get all crazy. We start judging the people in the seats around us, whether or not they're actually insiders. At Pathway Church, we constantly have people among us who are here trying to discover the Christian faith, who are trying to decide whether they want to follow Jesus. And if we start judging them according to the rules of Scripture and the teachings of Christ before they've even surrendered their life, we're Again, they're outsiders, but they're inside. Do you understand what I'm saying? So here's what we really do. We call people to live according to their own profession. If somebody comes in this church and like, I don't know Jesus, I'm a sinner, I don't care, blah, blah, blah. We're like, great, we have, very, we have no expectations of you, actually. Just be nice and don't make a scene. Right? Like, just come. You're welcome. Come be part of our community. That's okay. All right? But if somebody says, I'm getting publicly baptized, because I have submitted my life to Jesus and I'm going to live according to the teachings and this book I believe is God's word and I'm going to live by it. When they make a public profession like that, now we go, hey, you are now living outside of this. Come on back. That's, that's very different. You understand? That's what we do. And so we got to be careful because we call people to live according to their own profession. For example, just really crude example. Your neighbor gets mad at you because he sees you throw a pop can in the garbage. And he says, hey, we got to save the environment. You go, yeah, you're right. That's you. Right? Corrected? Yes. I'm going to make sure I sort those and put them in the blue bin, right? That's a responsible thing to do. Now, the next day, you walk out and you see him with a bag, your neighbor, with a bag of styrofoam, and he throws it on the street, and it blows down the road. That's hypocrisy. Can we agree? And you have every right to say, hey, based on what you have said, <laughs> you are living in direct contradiction to saving the planet, the very thing you asked me to do. And you go, oh yeah, it caught me. 
That is calling out hypocrisy. And we're, we're not implying a standard on them. We're calling them to their standard. Make sense? So that's what we're doing inside the church. When people claim to follow Jesus, we call them to it. So with all of that said, now we move into verse 15 where, where Paul is going to begin to make a theological argument about this hypocrisy. And I, I want to try to point it out and show you what it was. Verse 15, Paul continues. He's, I believe he's talking to Peter still. He says, we ourselves, you and me, Peter, we're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. The Jews had every moral advantage over Gentiles because they had the law of Moses, which told what God's standard was. They had the, the prophets. They had the scriptures. They had the revelation of the one true God. The Greeks and the Romans didn't have that. So they had all of this. They had circumcision, the sign of the covenant. They had all of these things going for them. And he says, look, we're both Jews by birth, not, not those people, okay, we have every advantage, and here's what he says next, so important. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul says, hey Peter, was your circumcision enough to save you? No, it wasn't. Was keeping the law of Moses and the sacrifices and all the festivals enough to save you? No. So what did you have to do? I had to trust in Jesus Christ to save me. Exactly. And that's exactly what these Gentiles have had to do. And it was the same way that we were both saved and were saved into one family. So, so what are you doing? That's essentially what's going on here. We know that we're not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, just like the Gentiles, we being Jews have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. Justified means made right. And not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Here's, here's your two options. How to be right with God. One, I'm right with God because I do good things and I'm a good person. Like what I do. Two, I'm right with God because of what Jesus has done for me. Like which one? Paul and Peter both agreed. It's because of Jesus, not because of me. Great. We're in agreement here. He continues. In the next couple of verses, he's going, to, he's going to address an issue that we sometimes think about. See, if I'm right with God, not because I live right, not because I'm a good person and I've got everything sorted out, if, if, if that's not why I'm saved, then I guess if he saves me, then I can do and live however I want. That's the argument, right? Maybe some of you met Christians like that. I said a prayer, I'm going to heaven, and now I live like whatever I want, do whatever I want, no rules. And, and Paul's going to say, no, no, that's not the case. Here's how he says it. But if, he says, in our endeavor to be justified or made right in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. He says, if we're trusting in Jesus, it will not lead us back into sin, the very thing he saved us from. That, this is the idea. He continues in verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Think of it this way. You had an old shed in your backyard, and you're like, that thing's got to go. doesn't work anymore. And you tear it down, and then you reconstruct it exactly as it was. You're dumb. Like, that just doesn't make sense. Like, it was useless, so we tore it down, and now we're rebuilding. And he's saying, look, if the law and, and this, this Judaism couldn't save us, and so we turned and trusted in Jesus, why in the world would we ever go back to it thinking that it will now save us? It's, it's like, that doesn't make sense. That, this is Paul's argument. And so he continues in verse 19, and I'm going to need about five minutes to explain this to you. Um, but he says this in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. 
death to the law. And I thought maybe the best way to do this would be to illustrate it. And so I need a couple volunteers that can run up here quick. And you don't have to do anything. You literally just need to stand and look pretty um, so we can illustrate something. So don't all run at once. Okay. All right. We got Brian coming. We got somebody else. Awesome. Jared and Brian. Okay. Which one of you wants to be the law? Okay. <laughs> okay. You can just tape that on there. Jared, you, you get to be you. So you guys can come on, stand up on the carpet. I'm going to try to stand behind so that I'm not throwing shadows on you guys. Um, so here's this idea. So in Romans, Paul spends about six chapters explaining in great detail, much better than I will, what I'm going to try to detail for you in about three or four minutes. Okay, so this is going to be a cursory overview. But essentially he says that God gave the law to Moses and to the world uh, as a way uh, to, to show us who he is, and what he requires of us. So he, he sets the law as a standard, like this is God's standard. And to please God, you have to meet the standard. And so he gives us the law. And of course, if you read the Ten Commandments, the first one is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. We all broke that one before we ate breakfast, probably. All right? And then we just jump through the list, and thou shalt not lie, who hasn't lied? Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not covet. And we've got all these rules that we clearly break if we're honest and not hypocrites, right? So he sets the standard, and we fall short of it. That's, that's the basic essence of it. And because he gave us the standard, we realize what our situation really is, how far we fall short. Sin literally means missing the mark. It means God had this standard, and we fall short of it. So there's your sin. And so we fall short. So, so there's the law. God gives it to us. And so the law becomes a standard for us to live up to, but since we fail to live up to it, it becomes our judge. And so Paul literally says that the law condemns us because Jared can't live up to Brian. He can't. I mean, look at, look at this. Look at, he's puffing up his chest. No, like, this, the, the, the standard is so high, like Jared and all of us, we can't meet up to it. Now, here's what else Paul teaches. I want you guys just to link arms like a chain. Just lock your elbows together. Okay. That literally, when we were born into this world, we were born linked to the law. That literally, I think in Romans 7, Paul talks about marriage. Like the covenant of marriage, like death do you part. Like only death is going to separate you kind of marriage. And he uses that as an example to talk about how we're joined to the law. That literally we have two options. One of them is that we fully, fully meet the requirements of the law and please God and we're saved, which we've already discovered we can't. Or we die under its judgment. Those are our options. And so Jesus shows up on the scene going, this should be obvious, guys. You're doomed. You need a savior. I'm here. And the Pharisees, here's the leaven of the Pharisees. They believed they were keeping the law. They thought they were actually succeeding. And so when you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Beatitudes, Jesus is like raising the bar. He's not really. He's saying, you think you're keeping the law, but you fall so short. You need me. You need to trust in me. And so we're in this situation where if Jared thinks that he can keep the law like the Pharisees did, then it will create pride in him, and he's actually falling short. And if he teaches others to do the same, he's actually leading them to their own destruction because they can never be saved as long as they're trusting in themselves. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. It was destructive in that day, and it's destructive today. However, the other alternative is that Jared or you and I die under the weight and the punishment of the law. So here's what happens. I need to separate you guys for just a second. So Jared, if you can step to my right. Jesus enters into the picture, okay, as a human being. We're going to lock arms, okay? So I'm now, I'm going to, I'm going to stand in for Jesus. Bear with me. All right, I'm not a very good. Uh, but, but here I'm standing for Jesus. So Jesus enters into the world like, like us. 
linked to the law from birth. And yet Jesus says he didn't come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it. Jesus is the first and only human to ever meet God's complete standard, the law as it was. So he achieves the keeping of the law for us. And he also pays the penalty of our sin. He dies under the law, under the judgment of God for our sins, not his own. So he meets the law and he's judged by it. And what Paul is going to say next is that because Jesus did this, when he died, the power of the law was broken from him. And when we trust in him, we die with Christ and the power of the law is broken. And we are now free to be married to another. Instead of the law, we're now free to be married to Christ. Okay? Um, And so now what happens is, I'm going to link arms with you here. So now, instead of being linked to the law and the power of it, through Christ... Jared is now linked to Christ. This was a relationship of duty and fear leading to judgment. This is a relationship of love that leads to life and hope. Okay? And this is the, the, this is the transformation he's talking about. So can you guys give these guys a round of applause? And now we're going to read the text. Thank you. Thank you very much. So now I'm just going to quickly read the last few verses, and hopefully this will make sense given the imagery that I've shown you. Through the law... I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. When Christ died and paid the penalty for my sins, when I trust in Christ, I'm dead with him. And when he raised to life, I'm raised. This is why when we baptize people, we say, buried into his death, raised in newness of life. You're not dying. Your personality's not dying. The penalty for your sin That link that could not be broken with the law and sin is being broken through Christ and you are born into a new relationship. You are no longer married to the law. You're now married to Christ. And here's what I would say. Um, When we enter into this new relationship with Christ, I said it was one of love and I don't mean touchy-feely. I mean like, I mean that we are so appreciative of what Christ has done for us. It changes the way we live, okay? Okay. I used this example in the first service when 20 years ago today, I was engaged to my, my wife, Jessica, who's in the front row. And I was in Trenton, and she was in Peterborough, north of Peterborough. I used to drive all the way to see her on a Saturday morning, and we would spend the whole day together because we were young and we were in love. And we would usually spend most of the day shopping. We'd walk around the malls and the stores. And for those of you that know me, I hate shopping. I really do. I, I have this thing. Uh, I call it MMS. It's really similar to PMS, okay? I get headaches, my feet get swollen, I, I just, I, I just I feel blotchy. It's, it's really bad, but whenever, I call it male mall syndrome, and you get me after 30 minutes in a mall, my feet get heavy and swollen, my back's sore, and I have headaches, and I'm just like, get me out of here. I hate shopping, but I did it because I loved her, and if you'd have asked me, do you love spending three hours in winters? I'd be like, no, I don't. I love this woman. And so I was motivated to do things out of love for her, not out of duty. And you know what's amazing is, as I thought about this, this will come back to bite me, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) As I thought about this, you know, after almost 20 years of marriage, my wife will now ask me, hey, you want to go to Winners? And you know what my first thought is? Do I have to? And it's amazing how what we start out with love can can start to slip back into duty. You know, I'm talking to you, right? whether it's in your relationships to people, but certainly in our relationship to Christ. In Revelation, Jesus calls the church back to their first love. (laughs) 
You used to be white hot in love with me. And hypocrisy is like, you're either white hot for Christ or you say, I don't believe in him and I'm going to do my own thing. Jesus is like, I'm good with either of those. Just nothing in between, please. Like when you straddle the line being like, yeah, you know what, church, I'm going to be like this and then I'm just going to go and do my own thing and I'm just kind of wishy-washy on the fence, calls it lukewarm. You know how Jesus feels about that? He's like, I'll literally spit you out of my mouth. That, there's nothing disgusts me more than someone who's trying to play both sides. Like, just pick, just pick. Hypocrisy. When we look at Jesus in the New Testament, I could talk all day about this, but um, he was so kind to people who were caught up in sin. He was so kind to the woman who caught in adultery, so gracious and loving. You know who he was hard on? Hypocrites. People who stood there and went, yeah, we're good with God because we do all the right things, and he would just unleash terror on them. You're like tombs. You're white and beautiful on the outside. Inside, you're like rotten, dead bones. Strong words. So let's, let's go hunting for hypocrisy. Not out here. Right here. Let's find anywhere it resides and clean house. Because if we don't, it'll damage our relationship with God. It will find us moving towards the wrong kind of duty instead of loving and pursuing the Savior who paid for our sins on the cross. So with that, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for this text, man. Uh, I've just been so caught up with the imagery God, that you, would, that you would take my place, that you would meet the requirements of the law for me, that you would take the penalty for my sin so that I could be free from the law and joined to you. God, help me never to want to go back to that. Help me live a life. Help us today to live a life where we seek to love and honor and live out of this new relationship with you and not out of duty to some law in trying to earn our salvation. God, I pray that we would be a people who are not hypocrites, but that we would be a people who, when people see us, they see some type of broken, cracked image of Christ. Help us to be those people. God, if there's anyone in this room who's never surrendered their life to you, never professed their faith through the waters of baptism, I pray that they would, they would decide today to take a step in that direction. And those, for those of us who've been Christians and trying to follow you for a long time, may we, May we not lose our first love. May we return to it. May we be white hot once again, in love with the one who loved us enough to die for us in our place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.